Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast for Muncie First Brethren Church with Pastor Jim Garrett. This week, we continue our series in the Gospel of John. As Jesus continues his conversation with Nicodemus, he gives us the proof of how much God loves us. Here's Pastor Garrett. It is no surprise as we go through this to see how Jesus turns everything inside out, upside down, whatever, whatever contrast comes to mind of the things that he does as he encounters people. I think that's what I like about the Gospel of John is that, that yes, he does miracles and, and that happens in, in the other uh, Gospel accounts, but in John you have this uh, description and, and it's important for us to keep in mind because Jesus is going to convey these earthly realities that are grounded in spiritual realities. And so we saw last week telling Nicodemus, he said, you know, I'm describing what needs to happen to you right here, right now. You have to be born again. He kind of describes this process. What's born of flesh is flesh. What's born of spirit is spirit. That, that you, you have to have this new birth in order to see or enter the kingdom of God. But now he's going to take him further and tie it to the heavenly realities. And so we ended by saying, you know, I'm telling you these earthly things about what needs to happen with you and you're struggling to believe. What's going to happen when I tell you these heavenly things? What's going to happen when you're confronted with the facts of who God is, what he's done, and how he accomplishes all of that in the person of Jesus? Because it's where Jesus, where Jesus happens, you have this merging of those two realities and makes it completely possible. And that's what makes him so unique. And the exception, the, well, let's, make, let's finish that. The exceptional um, aspect of what it means to believe. He is what makes that possible. And so you can have all kinds of religion. Nicodemus knew that. He was, he, he was kind of... Um, I had a negative word there, muddled, I was going to say, but he was engrossed. He was, he, he was fully engaged and involved in this religious system that had developed, but yet at the same time, he had missed God because he had missed the Messiah. He had missed the promised coming of the anointed one. And that was, that was all that mattered when Jesus confronted him was that, Nicodemus, you have to know what God is really offering here. He's not offering you religion. He's not offering you all of these things that you're doing. He's offering you a relationship through a person. And it is so precise and distinct that, 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 that it doesn't even allow for these other kind of movements away from or in the direction of something else. And so as Jesus talked to Nicodemus and invited him to see this, this reality that needed to be true of him, Nicodemus was asking, how can this be? And this is where Jesus is going to take him and root him in the heavenly reality, if you will, the spiritual reality, the reality that is God, because that is the only way we can lay claim to it in our experience and in who we are now, in this, in this earthly realm, if you will. But God has done that. He's made that entirely possible. And so we were ready for verse 13. And remember, it was in verse 12 where Jesus said to him, you know, if, I, if you're struggling with these earthly things, you're really going to have 
to come to terms with these heavenly things and, 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 and wanting him to know this, wanting him to be able to handle it. So the first reality, Jesus is going to even take him deeper now to show how God does this. He's going to take him back to an event that, that is tied to him and the things that happened to him, but that God had been giving, giving and had given a rehearsal type of event to, to attach to the importance of this faith. Because that's, what is, that's what's being described here. Why take God at his word? Why believe in him at all? Why look at Jesus and say that he is the fullness of all that God is? That's what Paul says. He's the fullness of deity. He, in him resides all the fullness. And the writer of Hebrews said it as well. And, 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 and in fact, that's what captured the, the, the heart and the imagination of Paul as he wrote his letters to say, think of this. This is what, this is what consumes us. And so... Jesus starts by saying, this is how God ties these two together. Verse 13, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. This is, this is a, an interesting verse to translate. It's really kind of simple to, to connect to what Jesus is saying here. This is Jesus indeed making these connections and saying, how did God portray himself and provide and deliver on the promises that he had made? How can he do that and on what basis? And so Jesus ties that, that claim to the authority that he has by virtue of the fact that he's there. He knows what is in the, the heart of the Father. He is the expression of the heart of the Father. So on what authority does he tie these two things together? On the authority given him as the one who has, and again, we see this described elsewhere in Scripture and uh, in Philippians chapter 2, the, the, the whole kind of, the, it's a song, it's a hymn that's inserted there describing what Jesus is, his mindset. Says, although he, he, he didn't see his deity, the equality with God as something to be grasped, as something to be held on to, he emptied himself and took upon himself the nature of a servant. He took on fleshly form and then obedience, obedience even unto death on a cross. Now, that's important for us to keep in mind that, that this backdrop of everything that Jesus accomplished is rooted in the heart and mind of the Father. Jesus didn't contrive this. He didn't come and say, maybe this would be a good idea. I could, I could go to this place where criminals go, those that are despised by not only government, government but the people around them, and, and I'll, I'll go and be crucified on a cross so that people can see that God loves them. That would have not worked, folks. It would, that would have failed miserably. For all the reasons that, that, that you, you would even mention the cross, in that culture it would have failed miserably, miserably unless it is attached to the very plan and purpose of God. It would have no meaning beyond the, the, the stake and a curse and the criminal activity associated with those who would be hanging on that tree. Justly or unjustly doesn't matter. It had no good connotation in the first century. The cross was not an ornament. It wasn't something that was decorative or decorated. 
It was something that was, was thought to be uh, the, the worst of all symbols. And yet God chooses that very symbol to, to ironically bring about life. To say that, that the, the one who, who dies there is taking upon himself everything you deserve on this, on this instrument of death, on the very thing that represents punishment and judgment, he is taking it upon himself so that through him you can live. Here's Jesus before Nicodemus, and I, I just, in, in my mind's eye, trying to put myself in the shoes of Nicodemus, I think his, his world right now is like, Oh my goodness, what, I, I could, so I imagine, what if he could text a friend right now? What, what, what emojis would he be using? And I could see all kinds of emojis coming out of him, like, and, and the, you know, whatever ones, that's Trey's favorite one. The one that's like, he does it just to get under our skin, though. So I now use it a lot, too, because now that I know that that happens, that's what you do, is you use the one that everyone looks at and goes, ugh. Seen enough of that one. What would he be? His world would have been an absolute spiritual chaos. Confronted with these truths, he's just, he's got to be reeling. But Jesus, Jesus does something very interesting here. And and really, it, it challenges us to do the same. So he says, I'm the bridge. I'm the bridge. What is planned in heaven performed on earth so that you can experience what God has planned all along, I'm the one that does that. So he, he goes to verse 14 that says, and this is where he pulls them back even further, this event out of Numbers 21, I would invite you, I'm going to pull it up here as well, but in your Bibles, if, if you want to turn there and kind of see what was going on, we're going we're gonna to look at it because Jesus here is saying that there was a message, a very distinct message. And really, when you go back and look at what God asked them to do, it, without the context of Jesus on the cross, you would be left saying, God is a really weird guy. Why would he do this? He doesn't do it like this anywhere else. But, but as we look at the context, you would go, what? What is going on here? This seems so contradictory that, that God would, in essence, provide what could be viewed as an idol. And in fact, many of the Israelites do view this item as an idol. It becomes something important to them. And it's Hezekiah who comes along and says, uh, no, that's not what this was for and tears it down later in their, later in their uh, progress. Why would God choose to do it this way? And it strikes me as one of those things I've taken for granted for a lot of years. Jesus says this here in John 3. He'll say it again in John 8, being lifted up. And he'll say it again in John 12. Four times that, that it's described twice in, in the 12th chapter, where he is lifted up, and it means only one thing. His ascent to the cross and death. And so he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent or the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So let's go to the Numbers 21 thing. Let's just look at it, see how far we get. This, because I, 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 
I'm just not sure what this will look like as we unfold this. I, I, as we unpack some of this, it, it does, it strikes me as being very, very odd until you hear Jesus say, by the way, God was sending a message about life and salvation and faith. And this is one of the things that emerges out of the Old Testament. Even the discussions of how God does things, how he responded to people, and, and, and at times seeming like, you know, there's, there's this unbridled anger towards, towards people and the things that they do. We have this situation where God is providing this just, you have to believe. You have to take me at my word. So in verse 4 of Numbers 21, he says that they were traveling from Mount Or along the road, a route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. Edomites were not wonderful people, and they were moving in a different direction. But it says that the people grew impatient on the way. This word impatient can be translated a lot of ways, and it's not just that they were tired of waiting. They were uh, becoming apprehensive. They were becoming um, irritated. Everything that goes with it is a part of this word. And so they spoke against God. Why would he do this to us? Why would we be here? And they were speaking against Moses. What are you thinking? What do you mean God told you to take us here? There has to be a better plan. There has to be a better idea. In fact, that can be attached to that word impatient is, we've got a better way of doing things. We've got a better timeline. Why are you leading us here? And they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Can you imagine God rescuing them from what had been these 400 years of, of slavery, and now they're saying, oh, you just brought us out here to kill us. There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. What was their miserable food? Yeah. Now, when you first see it and it's described, how did it taste? Like honey, and it kind of melted in their mouths, and... Now they're just, oh, it's miserable. Every day we get up to the same manna. Come on. Prime rib would work every once in a while. And, you know, just something else. But this is the nature of what's going on. It's part of people. It's part of what they do. But, but this, this becomes very, don't mean to gloss over this idea of speaking against God and against Moses. These are things that are happening every day and, and, and seem to be very um, um, pronounced within the community. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. <laughs> Here's the part you go, what? what? How, how does that response make sense to what was going on? I don't have a direct answer, but there's part of me that if I were God, I'd be saying, you think you got a bad? Here, let me show you something. I mean, it could be that, but I don't know that that's what was happening. But I do think there was a, a, a very important part of this lesson that, that you know, you want to speak against God, and, and here you are living because of God, claiming that he's here to kill you. You don't even know what you're talking about. Let me give you context. For me, that's a little too dismissive. I... I, I because I, I don't ever think that I can 
know what God is thinking. I like to think I do. I even tell people I do, but that, that's not the case. And it says that the people came to Moses, and then they said, okay, we sinned. We spoke against Yahweh and against you. Pray that Yahweh will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Yahweh said to Moses, make a snake, put it up on a pole, and anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. All right, folks, this is where it gets so interesting. This is so unique and, and the exception to the way that things happen with the Israelites. And, and later, no kidding, when you go to Kings and see what Hezekiah has done, they take this very thing and they make it an object of worship. It becomes a part of the, the high places and, and, and the poles that you see mentioned and the things that are raised in order to uh, uh, kind of uh, give them context for worship of other gods and other things and idolatry, this becomes one of them. Not where they worship God, but they worship the item itself. But, but notice what they're asked to do. All they have to do is look at it and live. So what if you're bitten by a snake and you go, ah, <laughs> he could heal me if he wanted to. He could, he could heal me. I don't have to do what he says. God can heal me if he just chooses to. That's true, right? And, and why didn't God just snap his fingers and say, pray, you prayed, Moses, so we'll just heal those? No, there's this, there's this whole interaction and reaction to God's instructions that reflect this, this call, this invitation to take him at his word. And, and there's this big lesson because that's what God was saying to them as he led them from Egypt. So he didn't give them a blueprint or a, 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 a timeline of everything that was going to happen, all the events and all of those things. He said, you're going to have to trust me. They didn't even know how to do that when they came out of Egypt. We already know that when, when there was the time that Moses went to receive the instructions from Yahweh, when he went up on the mountain, what did they do in the time that they had to kill down below? Well, magically, we know what happened. We know that Aaron was kind of conscripted to make a golden calf, but the way Aaron describes it is, he, they brought me their gold, I threw it in, and out popped this calf. I didn't do it, it just out. And that's, that's really how the text portrays what Aaron uh, gives as his defense. So we know that they have this, this construct of just really struggling with what it means to know this one and only God, this God who brings them out of Egypt. And the Lord chooses to reveal that truth in this way. All you have to do is look at it and you live. Nothing, you don't have to say anything. And we know this again from other Jewish historians. There wasn't some secret formula. All you had to do if you were bitten by a snake is look at the image of this snake and you will live. So without the context of Jesus in John 3, 8, and 12, and, and specifically Jesus saying, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Without that context, this is absolutely ridiculous. This is absolutely 
mind-blowing. And, and when I say ridiculous, not again, it's, there's just no way to make sense of it. It finishes by saying, so Moses made a bronze snake, he put it on a pole, then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Doesn't this make you ask, God wanted them to be well, why didn't he just take the snakes away? No more snake bites. <laughs> Too easy. I mean, it would be easy, right? That, that would be the easy thing to do. Or he says, only on the days ending in Y will you have snakes. Oh, wait, that's what he was doing already. Or, you know, just, or every other day there will be snakes. It wasn't that way. God didn't take away the snakes. That was another message to the people, and I believe a very important message. And, and often, and this is the sidebar that I was afraid of, but often there are things that God keeps from us. We don't even have any idea the things that, that maybe we don't walk through, and, and yet we, we are going through things that we're just, you know, are weighty to us. They, they seem to be a burden, and, and it's God's reminder to say, live those out in the context of being mine, rather than speaking against him and saying, you have bad plans for me. All you want from me is misery and sorrow and death. It was God's invitation to say, all I want from you is you. He doesn't promise us, that's going into song lyrics, we're not going to go there. He, he doesn't say that everything is going to be just the way we want it. He doesn't alter the, those things around us. We're not immune to that. In fact, we, we are subject to those things just like anyone else, but in the midst of it, we have a context to know him, and they did not just reject the relationship God had established, they rejected him. That, that's why I don't want to gloss over that speak against. It means that they were putting themselves in opposition to him. They weren't just saying, you know, these little trivial, menial things about God. They were positioning themselves against him that he had these bad intents. And then you see the words that you're here to kill us. You could have left us in a better place because much is better than the death that they thought they were going to face. So in the midst of that, we have this challenge by Jesus as he says to Nicodemus, that, that as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up for the very same reason that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Think of what was connected. Everybody, Nicodemus would have known this story. When Jesus says it in John 8, they knew the story. John 12, they didn't have to go back and go, now remind me again what happened. And Why did Moses do that? They knew what the backdrop. They knew the framework of this description. And so they knew what was required when they came to that serpent or that, that was lifted up on the pole. All they had to do was look and believe and they were given life. 
And Jesus says that was, that was God's teaching tool so that as it pointed forward, it pointed to this one who would be lifted up and there would be nothing positive about a snake. There's nothing positive about the cross. There was nothing positive about the circumstances that led to that, that need for healing. There's nothing positive about our sin. The only thing positive is, about, is God's solution. And so when they looked to that snake, all they had to do was look, and they were given life. The Father presents the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Son himself, Jesus, and says, all you have to do is believe, and you will be given life. And just so you know that that's what was intended, here's how Jesus then unwraps that. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever would come to him. Now, this is the nature of what God is offering. It's, and it's so intriguing to me when you start understanding that only, only for us would we have images of the cross around and, and presented as something positive. There was, again, nothing attractive about the cross. There was nothing attractive. No one else went to the cross and they were going, is he the Messiah? That question was never asked. But when Jesus presented himself and he went to the cross, he said, I'm going only for this one reason, because now when you see the cross, and this is the point Paul makes, I, 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 he said, in fact, in, in Corinthians, he told them, he said, I, I'm not here to do anything except to present the Messiah and him crucified. That everything, every view that the world has of this instrument of death, Jesus turned it upside down and presented it as a place of living, a place of life, and that all you have to do is look and believe. And, and so here's that, here's that spiritual reality being, uh, uh, being uh, uh, defined and, and confronting all of the things that run contrary to it from our perspective, and God saying, hey, there's a connection for the two. If you really want to know what I have for you, then you come to the place where I have made that promise and delivered on that promise, and it's in the person of Jesus alone. God so loved you. He's nuts about you that he sent his son to die for you and for me. And Paul later knows and understands some of, the, some of the depth of that to say, he who knew no sin became sin. That great exchange of 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who had no sin, he did not deserve to be there. He took upon himself all of the sin and punishment that we deserved. God put it on him so that he could put on us the righteousness of the Son. Wow. But see, here, here's our problem. Like Nicodemus, we're going, how can this be? Come on. You're telling me that all I have to do is accept that, and then God makes that true for me. I need to know more. All right? I, I, just, I just can't believe that. 
that's why you must see Jesus. And it's why he alone bridges that gap between the, 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 the solution being offered, the description of what God is offering, and the question of how can this be? You cannot look anywhere else. There's no other place that you can ask and answer that question except in Jesus. And so when he says, how can this be? What does Jesus do? Let me tell you, there's only one place you find the answer. And the one who can give you the answer and bridges the gap is the one who has been there. He knows. And so he points to himself, and, in, and, and I need to tell you, well, no, I don't need to tell you right now. We'll, we'll mention that another time. Hey, don't question my doubts. They, ha- they happen all the time. If you knew half the things I decide not to say because it's not time, you would go, <laughs> yeah. It would make your head spin. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. This is one of the things that, we need to hear loudly. He didn't send Jesus to send people to hell. He sent Jesus to save them from that destination because that's where we're headed. Paul, again, connects that to we are born into the nature of Adam. We deserve death. We deserve separation. God doesn't want that. He wants us connected in relationship. And so he accomplishes that through his son. So he didn't send Jesus to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Jesus is the Savior. Now, judgment comes through Jesus. The first thing that's judged is our sin and that which would separate. So the Holy Spirit, we're going to learn later in in John chapter 14, the Holy Spirit came to convict the world of sin, judgment, and righteousness, all related to, or sin, righteousness, and judgment, all related to the person of Jesus. Why, why define sin in him? Because it's the only place that it can be taken care of. Why righteousness? Because he's the only definition of righteousness. That's what God gives, judgment, because without him, there is nothing else but judgment. And so we have those, the activity of the Holy Spirit pointing to Jesus. God didn't send his son to condemn the world. Don't, don't let people tell you that. Why would a loving God send people to hell? You say, no, a loving God would save you from hell. We're going there without him. Because somehow the the default position for the world is that I'm headed to heaven. I've got this all wrapped up and and God's trying to send me to hell. No, folks, it's the opposite. We're we're headed to hell without Jesus. We don't need hellfire and brimstone as a, as a, a, a scare tactic. It's a reality tactic. Without Christ, that's, that's where we're going, separated from God, without the life of, of God in us. And in Christ, God provides all of that, and he says, all you have to do is look and believe. And so it takes you back, and so you remember that snake in the wilderness, and you're going, God, this is weird. And then you look at Jesus and go, God, this is the only thing that makes sense. You have the benefit of hindsight. Imagine Jesus making these connections for the first century believers, and they're going, what? You're connecting yourself to what? And they haven't even seen him on the cross yet. 
That's why it's so, it's overwhelming and, and just exciting to see. We're going to stop right there just because I want to. Because <laughs> we're running out of time. I know I've got a lot more to say. Um, and that's okay. So keep looking at this. And, and, and imagine, put yourself in the place of those that are hearing this. The rest of John chapter 3 is going to deal with John the Baptist. And it's going to be the last thing we hear of him in the, in the Gospel of John. Um, but, but especially, we, he must increase, I must decrease. This, this question comes up again of who he is. And, and, and John understanding his perspective with that backdrop of, of spiritual reality, the truth of who God is through Jesus Christ. When we go to chapter 4, we see we have Nicodemus, the religious leader, that has this standing in society. Now we come to not just a Samaritan woman. By virtue of being a Samaritan woman, she already is, is near the lowest rung of the societal ladder. Might, might by some even say the lowest rung. But then she's not just a Samaritan woman. We'll explain why. But now she's a Samaritan woman with a lot of, a lot of questionable things in her life. And so now she's really seen as being, you, you have this contrast. And Jesus' message to both is exactly the same. If you had come to me and asked for, and, and by the way, this is going to really challenge us to think in terms of the literal understanding versus the uh, metaphorical, but the, the, the descriptions that lead us to spiritual realities. So when Jesus says things like, I'm the source of living water, he's not saying that he is the, a well that we can go to, a physical place, uh, you know, in our context, but he is describing himself as the source of living water, a spiritual reality that cannot be dismissed in the midst of the metaphor. Or when he says, I'm the door, I am the good shepherd, all of those things represent spiritual truths. When we come to them, we accept them as, as the, uh, a revelation of, a, uh, of that spiritual reality that has a direct impact. So we're not going to go to a door over there and say, this is Jesus. That's not what he is indicating. We, but we can go to a door and say, he represents the only door to the reality that God is offering me. He's not the snake lifted up on the pole, but he's the life that God promises through faith in what God offers. And if you miss that, if you miss Jesus, there is no other place to go for the life that God offers. And that's what Jesus is going to say to Nicodemus. He's going to say that to the woman at the well. He'll say that to the people he feeds, the 5,000 and the religious leaders in chapter 5, on and on. Let's go there with him. And if you've already accepted him as the life giver, be renewed. Go before him. Just look to the, to, to the, to the place that he is, and it is exactly that place where we give thanks and worship and adoration to the Father who loved us. And then if you haven't, 
you know that life is available somewhere, and I don't know how you define it, but I'm telling you the way God defines it is as a, in a relationship for eternity with him that can only be found in Jesus Christ alone. And if you haven't found it in him, look and believe, and God will deliver on his promise. What a great promise that is. And Father, you are, that first verse just <clears throat> rings true with us, that it's through the Son, your Son, where that voice is disclosed to us, revealed to us, the promise of life and relationship, the, the nature of your love that you gave. You didn't take, you didn't ask us to give anything. It's, it's that you gave your son for us. So that all we have to do is believe. And Father, maybe there's someone here who has struggled with just that, that simple request that you have given, the invitation to just look and believe. Father, sometimes we think it'd be, it's easier to walk around snake bit. And it's heart-wrenching to watch those who think that that is a better way. So, Father, right now, I pray that, that if there's someone here who hasn't said yes to that offer of life, that in spite of the snakes and all that they deliver, that right now they would look to the cross and say yes and believe. And Father, for the rest of us who have already done that, may our look, our perspective be refreshed by the truth and the nature and the power of that relationship that you have given in Jesus alone. Thank you, Father. You are awesome, and we appreciate the ways that you've revealed that most importantly, most and completely in the person of Jesus. We love you. Thanks for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.